0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we're continuing our study of the book of Malachi we're calling, Heavy Words from a Loving Father. With this week's message, here's education pastor, Nolan Smith. Well, I'm sure everybody in here has had the experience at some point or another where something in your house or your apartment or your condo, wherever you live, something Breaks, and and it's really inconvenient. I, I think for, for me, the, the worst of these is is in the dead of summer when the air conditioner breaks, and and I know nothing will push a man to his mental limits like seeing 95 degrees on the thermostat in his house. It's it's brutal, and and in the worst of those cases, we you know will go stay like at a, at a family member's house because we can't we can't be there for something like that. But most of the time, when we have that experience of something breaking. We really just have to live with it. We just just have to live in the house with whatever it is that's broken. And we're constantly reminded of it. Because every time we walk by that broken window, or we go to reach for something that's in that fridge that isn't cooling, we go to put something in that dishwasher that's not running, or we go to turn on the shower but there's no hot water, every single time we're reminded. And we have that thought. When is someone going to fix this and if you're like me this only ever happens at Friday at 6 p.m. and you're heading into the weekend and no one's coming until sometime next week but you feel that moment that pain where you just think man when will someone fix what is wrong and as you turn in your copy of scripture to Malachi chapter 2 we're continuing in our series in the book of Malachi And that question, that sentiment, I think is is where we find Israel at the point where we're going to be reading about them today. They are looking around at their situation, and they're wondering, when is someone going to fix what's wrong? And so we're in Malachi chapter 2, looking at the end of the chapter at verse 17, it's where we pick up today, and in it, Malachi Speaking on behalf of God is talking to Israel. And what he says in verse 17 is You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? And so we, we first see right here that God, through Malachi, is accusing the people of Israel of this, this inexplicable ignorance. It's what one commentator called a hypocritical incredulity. It's where they are asking a question that they should know the answer to. They're going, God, I, I don't understand. How, how have we wearied you? And we, looking at what we've seen so far, are thinking, well, I know how you've wearied him. They should know how they have wearied him. Now, I will say that admittedly, the tone of Israel right here in this passage is a little bit hard to discern. It's it's kind of hard to understand exactly the the tone of what they're saying, but but what this comes down to, what we can gather is that Israel is, is either unable or unwilling to acknowledge reality. And the two quotes that Malachi attributes to Israel, they seem to come down to them saying, look, either evil is good or God's not going to judge anything. Either, either our understanding of what was evil and what was good, we've got that totally mixed up, totally backwards. Or God is not going to judge anything. Or maybe it's both of those. And so Israel is wrestling with this. And, and God is, is, is holding them accountable for it. But before we get into the implications of what they're saying here and, and what they're struggling with. Before we get into those implications. I think it's important that we understand what has happened up to this point in Malachi. So... In Malachi, so far, Israel has been exposed and rebuked for doubting God's faithfulness, for defiling the temple, and for abandoning their marriages, which we saw last week. And I think when we read a book like Malachi, it's easy for us to wonder, okay, how does a story about ancient Israel and their Covenant failures, how does this have anything to do with me? And that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked that. Uh, Because we're going to look at how Scripture, Scripture back in the book of Genesis, in the garden, the opening scene of the Bible, God gives us a picture of his original design. What he's telling us in those first few chapters of Genesis is this is how I created you and for what purpose. This is how and why you were created. And I want you to look at this. Whenever you're wondering, all right, what am I here for? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to engage with the world? How am I supposed to engage with my creator? Look at God's original design. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament... Basically, what we have is a story of Israel, God's chosen people, and and God is is maintaining a, a relationship with his people, and Israel trying to stumble through this relationship with their God, but now they're held back by sin. And so we see Israel trying to maintain this relationship with their creator, but through sin. And so what we might say, in other words, is that what, what Israel is doing here in Malachi actually falls into a very instinctive pattern of human sin. It's a pattern common to humanity ever since the garden. It's a pattern of sin into which you and I will very often fall. So let's consider what Israel's failures represent in the big picture narrative of the Bible. So what we're going to look at is God's design in the garden, how it was supposed to be. Then we're going to look at how God was able to accomplish that with Israel in a broken, sinful world. And then we're going to look at how Israel responded. So first, we see that God placed humanity in a garden where all their needs would be met. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and said, here's everything that you will need. Now, after they sin and, and sin enters into the world and he, he does something with Israel to sort of reestablish this. What does he do? Well, he rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt And he makes a covenant with them. And he says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. But what does Israel do? As we we saw in the opening verses of Malachi, they doubt God's faithfulness. Even though he has provided for their needs, they doubt God's faithfulness. In the garden, God walked among humanity. He gave them full access to himself. He dwelled in the garden with humanity. They had full, unfettered access to their creator. Of course, sin happened, and, and then in a, in a sinful, broken world, there was a broken relationship between humanity and God. But for Israel, God made a way. He gave Israel the Ark of the Covenant and a means by which they could still approach him in the Holy of Holies. It was different. It was imperfect. But now they still have this ability to commune with God. They, they still, he still finds a way to give them access to himself, and yet what do they do? They defile the temple. They defile the temple. In the garden, God gave humanity the institution of marriage. Why? Well, he looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. So he gave Adam Eve. So there was companionship. There's also collaboration. He said, I want you to have dominion in the earth. I want you to subdue it. And so I'm going to give you someone where you can collaborate to that end. And also, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. So here's how you're going to do it through the institution of marriage. That was how it would be according to God's design. For Israel, what did it look like? Well, he called Israel to be holy and set apart in their marriages. Don't marry the other nations. And it wasn't a racial superiority thing. It wasn't wasn't about prejudice. It was about keeping their worship pure and undefiled. I don't want you to marry into these other nations who are worshiping these other gods. But what did Israel do? Well, We saw last week, Caleb took us through this passage where Israel has abandoned their marriages. And they've married the daughters of the other gods. And if we were to work today's passage into this pattern, we were to look at what we just saw in verse 17 in light of this framework, we would recognize that back in the garden, God told them, hey, trust my design. When I say what is right, just trust in that. Like, trust in my definition of good. And don't take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to say, God, I'm, I'm going to decide what is good for myself. I'll make the decision about what is good and what is not. For Israel, God called them to keep his statutes. He said, hey, I've got instructions for you. I want you to do this because it's for your good. Don't turn away from my statutes. But what does Israel do? Well, they've rejected God's definition of good. They've defined good on their own terms. And so we look at this, and basically what we're seeing is in the garden, God's design for us, we see that he gives us all that we need, We see that he gives us access to himself for relationship. We see that he gives us human relationship for fellowship. And he gives us instruction to stay within his design. But whether it's Adam and Eve, or it's Israel in the Old Testament, or it's you and me today, we all fall into this cycle of sin. And it starts with doubting God's faithfulness and his provision. We wander from his presence. We hide from him. We withdraw from human connection and fellowship. And we choose to do what is good in our own eyes. And that's what Israel has done here. And God says that his people approving of sin has wearied him. It's wearied him. Now, elsewhere in scripture, in, in Isaiah chapter 40, God says, I don't grow weary. And so we see this here and we're thinking, well, okay, you don't grow weary, but now, you're, now you are weary. So what happened? Well, in Israel, uh, excuse me, in, in Isaiah, what he's saying is, hey, I don't grow weary in the sense that I don't run out of energy, out of resources to the point where I can no longer do something. That's, that's a human thing. I don't grow weary the way that a human does, where I'm too tired. Now I can't handle something. But he does grow weary in the sense that he watches Israel continue in their disobedience. And he says, this is frustrating. This is pushing me to frustration and anger. And so we see God's people approving of sin. But we also see Israel mistakes God's patience for inaction and apathy. They mistake his patience, which we'll talk about. They mistake that, God, you're not doing anything or you don't care. They say, where is the God of justice? And I think this may be one of the most relatable questions in the whole Bible. And it comes in some different forms. And this is the theme that I want us to focus in on with the rest of our time. Where's the God of justice? It's a question that I think you ask most non-believers, and they'll tell you, that's one of my biggest reasons that I'm not a Christian. Because I look around at a broken world. I see sin. I see suffering. I see evil. And you say that your God is a good God, a God of justice, but I don't see that. So I can't trust him. But I, I think it's fair to say that almost every Christian has probably wrestled with this question at some level. That even we as Christians will sometimes look around and go, yeah, I mean, like I, I, I love God. I trust him. But, but sometimes it's hard to recognize where his justice is. God, you're, you're letting some things go that, that seem like you shouldn't. So, God, where, where's your justice? It's a natural human response we innately recognize a difference between good and evil. And like Israel, we can become confused about that. We can get to the point in our sin that that we start to confuse those things. But there is within all of us the ability to distinguish good from evil. And when we look around at evil, at injustice, at suffering in the world, something is stirred in us. And we look for a solution. We long for it. We ask, God... God, what is the solution to this? When will you fix this? God, where is your justice? And the truth is, God has a response to evil. He has a response to our pain. He has a response to this very question. And we see it in the next verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold... I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God, where's your justice? And he says, I'm coming. I'm coming. But verse two, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, those are the priests, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment." I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So what is his response? I'm coming. I'm coming to the injustice. But first, he says, there's a messenger that's going to come before me. And that messenger, as we'll see here in just a second, is actually, is John the Baptist Uh, But behind this messenger, after the messenger comes, would come the Lord. And in this particular prophecy, he's not coming in peace, but in judgment. And so I think we could look at this and we go, okay, so you say it's John the Baptist. That means the coming of the Lord. That that must be Jesus. But I'm thinking about the Gospels right now. And I don't remember a time in in the Gospels where Jesus comes like a fire to purify Israel. When did that happen? Well, Jesus actually addresses this. He addresses this in, in uh, Matthew chapter 11. And just to set the stage here in Matthew chapter 11, at this point, what has happened is John the Baptist has come proclaiming this message. He has come and he's been saying, hey, I want, you, I want Israel to repent, be baptized into the kingdom. Uh, I'm going to baptize you in water, but there is somebody coming after me and I'm not fit to hold his sandals and he's going to baptize By fire. So it's language that sounds a whole lot like this here in Malachi. And what was Israel's response to John the Baptist when he was saying these things? Well, this guy's a weirdo. Let's throw him in jail, right? So they throw him in prison. And it's from prison where John sends a couple of his disciples, because a lot of people would have had disciples, it would have been just Jesus. John sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. And his disciples come and ask a question on his behalf. Hey, Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another one? And and I think a lot of times when you read that, it's it's real easy to look at that and go, oh, John was losing faith. Like, he's in prison now. He must have realized, like, oh, maybe Jesus, maybe I was wrong about Jesus. I don't think that's at all what happened. Uh, We're not going to go into what John was actually asking there. But he asked the question, are you the one, or should we look for another? And so Jesus, we're going to see his response in verse 10 of Matthew 11 Jesus hears this question from John the Baptist, and he turns to Israel, and he says this. This, meaning John, the guy who just asked this question, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So what is Jesus saying? Yeah, that messenger is John. And if this sounds familiar, it's because he's quoting Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And consider this, Malachi is the last prophet before Jesus shows up. Malachi, then 400 years of silence in Israel. They don't hear from God, they don't hear from one of his prophets, and then Jesus shows up. And what does he say? Hey, that last prophecy we heard from Malachi about the coming of the Lord, right here. John is the messenger to prepare the way. And it's interesting how this is worded, that that first person there. It's not how it reads in Malachi, but Jesus reads it in the first person. I will prepare your way before you. I guess that's the second person. I'm not good at that. But he says the second person, your way before you. Why? Jesus understands this is about himself. And that's what he's telling them. God's talking about me. I'm here. I'm the messenger. I am the coming of the Lord. And then he says this. And if you, Israel, are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. John is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So basically what he's saying, we won't get into the Elijah part of that, but but to translate that, he's saying, John is the one that Malachi is talking about. He is the messenger, meaning I, I am the coming of the Lord for judgment in Israel. But what happened? If you, Israel, are willing to accept it. But they weren't. Because how did they react to John? They threw him in jail. How did they react to Jesus? They hung him on a cross. Jesus says, I'm here now to be the coming of the Lord in judgment to cleanse and purify Israel. And I'm here. I can establish my kingdom. We can do it right now. But the thing is, you're not ready. You're not going to accept me. And so Jesus didn't come To cleanse Israel at this point. Now he's saying. I'm here in peace as a savior. So this is not a prophecy. That Jesus just left unfulfilled. And said well I was going to do that. Now I'm not going to anymore. It's still a prophecy of the future. Because if Jesus came as a peaceful savior. At this time. He's coming back later. As the judge of Israel. To cleanse and to purify them. And so what we see here in. Malachi is that we recognize God's judgment is coming for his people. It's coming for his people. It's coming for Israel. Jesus said, I'm here to do it now, but you're not ready for it. So it's still coming in the future for Israel. And we're not Israel, we're the church. And so the promises to Israel are not the promises to us. And the prophecy for Israel is not the prophecy for us. But God's judgment still comes for his people, and we are his people. And so I think one of the ways that we can understand his judgment coming for us is that, yes, there is a future coming of judgment, but there is also the reality that you and I face judgment for our sins here and now in this life. Romans chapter 1 talks about this. Paul talks about the process of people descending into their sinful desires and God giving them over to that. So there are natural consequences to our sin. We face the consequences. We face the, the, the negative outcome of our choices. And that is a form of judgment that God will say, hey, you're going to do that. I'm going to give you over to the consequences. I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your choices. So even for us, we are God's people and we can experience that judgment here in this life. For Israel, the judgment where Jesus comes to cleanse and purify Israel is still coming. But we also know this about God's judgment, is that it's good for his people. It's a good thing. This purification process would be one that would cleanse Israel and make them who God had intended them to be. And so it's coming and it's, it's a good thing. We continue in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers, you have, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you and your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but, but you say, how have we spoken against you? Again, we see that, that incredulity, that inexplicable ignorance. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So here we, we get a picture of, of God's First, his love and his patience. He says, I don't change, Israel. I don't change. Though Israel has failed, God is still merciful and he is still loving as much as he ever was towards his people. And we get this reference to Joshua 1 where where God reminded Joshua and the people of Israel, hey, don't sway to the left or to the right from my statutes. Keep them, keep doing them so that I can keep blessing you. And that's where we see his love. We see his patience and that he is slow in dealing with their disobedience and their sin. And we see his love and that he's saying, hey, I want you back. I want you to come back into obedience so that I can continue to bless you. And he says here to the the people in Malachi, he says, I want you to come back because then I will will bless your your crop. You you will yield a crop and, and people will look at you. Nations around you will look and go, wow, they are really blessed. I want to do that for you, Israel. And all you've got to do is turn back. All you have to do is come back to keeping my statutes. And then he does something that seems a little bit strange. He calls out their tithing. And and so we wonder, what what place does that have here? What is he doing? And and we, we have to understand, God instituted tithing for a specific purpose. It was for the purpose of supporting the priests so that they could devote themselves to the priesthood. And it's actually really cool. We see the very first tithe in Scripture. It's before Israel is a nation. It's when Abraham gives a tenth of all his possessions to this guy named Melchizedek, who is the first priest in Scriptures, which is also a really cool story. We we, we can't get into it now. It's really cool. But Abraham gives a tenth of all his possessions to Melchizedek, the priest. And, and then God gives Israel this command to tithe, give a tenth of all their possessions, and it's to support, it's to support the 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 priesthood. Now I want to say this as an aside because when we talk about tithing it's important that we note tithing was a law for Israel. It's not a law for us and so here at Grace Church you won't hear us talk about tithing as as a practice because we don't think that that's a command for us to tithe. Instead we have what we call grace giving. You see we recognize Israel was under the law Meaning, there was a law that said you have to give 10% of your possessions to support the priesthood. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we don't believe that we're under compulsion to give a certain amount of our things. But we are invited to trust God with our finances. And the giving that we do now, it still serves the same purpose of supporting the church and the ministry. But we're not under compulsion to give an exact amount We are invited by God. Hey, trust me, I have given you your money, so trust me with it. Use it for my purposes. As Christians, I think part of discipleship is that we trust God not only with our finances, but we are faithful stewards of all the resources that he's given us. But to go back to Israel, I think what we're seeing here in Israel is that from this passage, we get the sense that Israel's priests are woefully subpar. And they're kind of Israel's kind of getting what they deserve you know if you'll forgive the pejorative phrase here they got what they paid for Israel's uh, Israel is suffering they they have insufficient ties that resulted in insufficient priests now I want to make the point I don't think this means that the priests get to go to God and be like look we're not doing a very good job because they're not paying us enough and God's going to be like, oh, never, okay, that's fine. Okay, don't worry about it. No, they're still culpable. They, they are still accountable for their, their performance. And God even says, they're the ones that I'm going to cleanse, right? I'm going to cleanse the priests and restore Israel back to, to their proper worship. So he still holds them accountable. And, and, and no minister of the gospel should ever go into ministry to get rich. If, if, a, if a person goes into ministry to get rich, shouldn't be a pastor, shouldn't be in ministry. And if a church or a ministry is paying them in such a way that that's a temptation they probably have their priorities a little bit misaligned there. But the point is simply this. Israel's disobedience leads to Israel's suffering and to further disobedience. This final verse here, verse 14, is most revealing. See, without the blessing, Israel doesn't see the point of obeying God. They look around and they say, hey, we're, we're not getting a blessing. And also, we're seeing people that are doing the wrong things, people that are disobedient, and they're not getting punished for it. So if we're not going to get the benefit and they aren't going to get the judgment, then what's the point? And I think it's real easy to look at them and go, whoa, Israel, you should obey God, not because there's any benefit for you. You should just obey God for the sake of obedience. And I don't actually think that's entirely true. To say that you shouldn't obey God out of the incentive That he offers, I don't think that's entirely honest. Now, so let's look at obedience. I think there are two elements to obedience that are really important. We shouldn't miss either one of them, but we also shouldn't mix them up. We shouldn't get them misaligned. There's two elements to obedience. The first is that obedience should be a response from us, and it should be a response out of love that we should look at God and understand who he is, understand his character, understand his love for us, and from that, be moved to obedience. It should be a response. In other words, it should not be something that we do in order to try and earn his love. We should never obey God with the the understanding that if I do this for you, God, then you will love me. Or then I will be worth loving. That's not how we should do it. In fact, God says it very clearly in his scriptures. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved Loved us. We don't initiate the relationship God did. And so our love for God, our obedience to Him, and, and John follows this up just a few verses later by saying, The love of God is to obey His commands. So that's, that is how we love Him. But He says, You don't love God first. He loved you first. And so our obedience should never be an attempt to initiate a relationship with God. We should never obey Him in hopes that if I do this, God, Now you'll bless me now, or or rather, now you'll love me. We shouldn't expect that. We need to recognize first, God, I know who you are. I see your grace and love for me. And because of that, I love you. So that's the first element of our obedience. The second element of obedience is that it will result in a future blessing or benefit. It will result in a future blessing or benefit. But it's not necessarily immediate gratification. So the benefit to obeying God isn't necessarily always obedient. uh, It's not necessarily always immediate. For Israel, there was a physical, tangible reward that they could see in their midst because God would say things like, hey, if you'll come back to obeying me, I will bless your your crops. I will restore your your finances. There was actually an element of prosperity to their reward, to their benefit. And that was because God had a specific covenant with Israel he had a covenant because he wanted to show through Israel he wanted to show all the nations around who he was and that that he wanted to bless them and that he did require you to live in such a way as to be holy and set apart and if you would do that you would enjoy the benefits of life in him and so he had this very tangible very real physical blessing that came with obedience for Israel for you and me we don't live in that covenant And so the blessing and the benefit of obeying God doesn't look exactly like it did for Israel. In fact, for us, a lot of times it's not going to be physical. It's not going to be earthly. And we should actually expect, according to Scripture, sometimes to to have the opposite. That this life is going to be pretty hard at times, specifically because of our faith. So for us, the benefits then are not so physical in nature as they are spiritual and relational. The benefits of obedience to God are, for one thing, what we would, we would use the word fellowship. It's what really the whole book of First John is all about. John is talking about how if you will obey God, you get to live in close fellowship with him. That as you go through this life, you get to do that with God close by. Now... If you're disobedient, it doesn't mean that God abandons you. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian anymore. It doesn't mean that you lose out on eternal life now. It just means that here and now you miss out on the benefit of close fellowship with him. It makes sense in light of our human relationships that if you had a friend and you, you never called him, never talked to him, never spent time with him, you'd feel distant. It doesn't mean you're not friends or they're not your, your relative or whatever it is, but you don't feel close to him anymore. And it's the same with this. If you don't obey God, you miss out on that. But we also recognize there's another benefit to obedience. There is a reward that somewhere on the other side of eternity, we are going to have a different experience based on how we live this life. Based on our obedience right now, that will have an impact on how we experience eternity. We can get a reward on the other side of death. And and so, both of those things are An incentive. So it's not entirely true to say that you should just obey God for the sake of obeying him. You should obey him out of a response to his love. And he wants to incentivize that. He wants to tell you, hey, there is a benefit to this. It is for your good that you obey me. And so God's love for Israel means that he is first patient in their disobedience. But in his love, he wants them to return so that he can continue to bless them. So we see both his patience and his love on display and we also understand from this that that there are natural consequences as we talk about to our disobedience. There are natural consequences when you are disobedient you will experience those but likewise there are also consequences good ones to obedience to him and God wants us to enjoy those. So again, what does a passage about Israel's covenant failures have to do with us? Well, they ask this very significant question about God's justice. God, where is your justice? And in this, we see first, well, God's response to to sin, it's justice. When we look around and we see sin and all of its effects, the evil carried out by others, the destruction of a hurricane, the pain of a sick child, the suffering of our own loss, we look around and we see sin and its effects All around, and we ask that question God, when will you fix this? And what we can see here is that God's response to sin is justice. I'm coming. Meaning, He will render judgment for sin, and the penalty will be paid, and everything will be set right. But as we think through that, we recognize okay, if His justice is about dealing rightly with sin, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty. So is his justice really good news for me? Well, it is. His justice is good for a few reasons. His justice is good, number one, because it brings us back into fellowship with him. It brings us back into fellowship. When we experience justice for our sin, what it will do is prompt us to go back into fellowship with God. I I think primarily of the story of the prodigal son. Jesus told the story of the prodigal son who looked at his dad and said, Dad, I want my inheritance, I want my money, and I want to go spend it on me. I want to to go enjoy the pleasures this world has to offer, and I'm going to leave you behind. And so he does. He he runs off. He finds himself in a foreign country in a famine without the protection of his father's home, and he, he realizes, I am experiencing the consequences of my choices. I am experiencing justice for my sin, right? This is a form of God's judgment. And he realizes it and what is his response? I got to go back. And so the, the experience of God's judgment, the consequences of his sin, is actually to turn him back. And he goes back and he finds a patient and loving father who wants to bless him again. And so God's justice is good because it draws his people back into fellowship It's what it's meant to do for you and me when we feel the consequences of our sin. It's meant to have us go, wow, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go back into fellowship with God. I want those benefits again. Second is it restores us to a state for which we were created. In Israel, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to to cleanse you. I'm going to purify you and your, your worship is going to be pure once again. Your offerings are going to be what they were supposed to be. You, Israel, are going to to carry out the function you originally had when I called you out. And so it restores us back to what we were made for. For us as Christians, we won't ever, on this side of eternity, get to fully experience the garden again. Not until the very end. But God does want us to taste that experience. He does want us to know, hey, when I created humanity and place them in the garden and everything was good i want you to i want you to understand that i want you to experience what that was like so that you'll know i love you i've always wanted to provide for you i've always wanted to give you access to me i've always wanted to give you fellowship i've just wanted you to trust me and so this is a way for us to 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 go back into the state for which we were created to carry out our design when we say like i want to i want to know what my purpose is what am i here for and God says, you're here to live out the design I gave you in the early chapters of Genesis in the garden. That's what you're made for. And so justice and, and experiencing God's judgment draws us back to a place where we can do that again. And finally, God's justice is good because it shows those around us his character. It shows, us, it shows everybody his love and his desire to save them. Now we might struggle to see God's justice at times, but when we see it, When we understand it, we see God is good. He is worth trusting. And so for the people of Israel, it looked like God saying, hey, when you do what I say, I will bless you. I will give justice to your obedience. I will bless you. And the nations around you will go, wow, they're really blessed. We want to be like them. We want to serve their God too. And in our lives, when we can display God's justice in a broken world and we can carry out God's justice in a broken world, then people will look at that and go, I want want to serve the God whose standard is that. I I want justice for sin, and if that's the God who will give it, I want that. It's meant to draw people to God when we see his justice. But we've talked a lot here about justice and about judgment, about the pain and suffering that you experience as a result of your own sin. And you might be thinking, okay, but not all my pain and suffering is because of my own sin. At least I don't think so. So what do I do with that? And I'd say we have a couple of categories to to understand this. Because there are storms of correction in our lives. but There's also storms of perfection. And a storm of correction is one that happens. It's the the pain that we experience that God is specifically using to bring us back to the right course. You know, the the most obvious example of this in Scripture is when Jonah hears God say, Hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach there. And Jonah's like, No, I'm going to go the other way. And he goes the exact opposite direction. And what does God do? He literally sends a storm to correct Jonah's path and put him back on the path that God intended for him. So he sends a storm of correction. But there's also storms of perfection. Storms that aren't a result of our our sin. They're They're not a form of judgment for our sin. They just happen. And God says, this is going to grow your faith. This is going to grow your faith. This is going to draw you deeper into trust in me. And and God sometimes sends the storm of correction, and he might even send a storm of perfection, but we have to know that God doesn't always send storms. Sometimes he allows them. This is a broken, sinful world, and it's not just the evil sin of another person that causes us pain. It's also just the physical results of sin in this world that can create pain for us. So sometimes God sends it. Sometimes he allows it. And we're going to hear stories, if you come to our Wednesday night series starting this week, we're going to hear stories from people about these storms of perfection. They were facing storms, maybe felt alone, but through that recognized that God was with them. It was a storm of perfection, one that he was using to draw them close to himself. But I also know that when I say God doesn't send every storm, sometimes he allows it, and you might go, okay... I don't know if it makes me feel a lot better if you say my pain isn't something that God caused, but it is something he allowed. So why is he allowing this pain? And I have to tell you, my answer is I don't know. I don't have that answer. I'm not God. But when we face pain and God isn't taking it away, there are two promises that we can hold on to. And the first is in Romans 8:28 when he says I work all things together for the good of those who love me. He promises I can take anything and everything that is happening right now. I am a big enough, good enough God that whatever I have allowed to happen as a result of the sin in this world, I can take that and I can use it and I will use it for your good. And God's justice is good for us, but without one other massively significant character trait of his, justice isn't good for us without God's mercy his justice isn't a good thing for us we need his mercy too and when God promises that he can work together all things for our good nowhere is that more clearly demonstrated than on the cross So, on the cross God reconciled two seemingly opposing forces of his justice and his mercy he took something that looked like there was no way that any good could come of it And he used it for our good. See, the enemy put Jesus on a cross. And then Jesus used the cross to free us from the enemy's stronghold. You know, the beauty of this truth is that its power to give you eternal life is freely available to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove yourself worthy of it. All it takes is just trusting That on the cross, Jesus took the just punishment for our sin. So justice was served for you and for me. And his mercy meant that he offered us in exchange. Hey, I'll take your sin. And I'll take the just punishment for your sin. And you, in exchange, can have my righteousness. And with my righteousness, you can stand before God clean, unstained by sin. And you can have eternal life through that. And so if you have never trusted in that. I would invite you to trust that today. That Jesus died to bring you into eternal life. And so when you ask, why hasn't God stopped your pain? I would say that he has a two-part plan. Part one is to die for you, to reconcile you to himself right now. And we experience that even right now. And part two Two is our final point. It is that one day, God's justice will be the means by which he eliminates all sin and suffering once and for all. It is justice that is coming to eliminate sin and all of its effects, all of our pain and suffering. If mercy is how God can rescue you from sin and bring you into life, then justice is how he will set all things right and once he has done that then all who are in him all who have died and gone to be with him now and all of us still here all of us who are in him we will get to experience that new creation together for all eternity where justice has been done once and for all no more sin no more suffering just God and his people forever. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.